Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their insights and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by the French Lick Resort, the PGA Tour Superstore, the Bobby Jones Apparel Company, Two Under, Ben Hogan Golf, and Golf Pride. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and thank you for coming back and joining me tonight as we kick off season number seven of Next on the Tee. And we're going to kick it off in grand style with three of the top instructors in the game, and Jonathan Yarwood, David Lee, and Rob Strano. Jonathan Yarwood helped coach Michael Campbell to the 2005 U.S. Open Championship, so we'll talk about what it was like being a part of that major championship victory. He also spent a few years as a director of instruction over at the Concession Golf Club, which is one of the top courses in the state of Florida, designed by Tony Jacklin and Jack Nicholas. And Mr. Jacklin has been a great friend of the show over the years, so we'll definitely talk about that. Plus, we'll get into his teaching philosophy, and we'll also get his thoughts on the impact technology is having on the game. So very excited to get to spend some time with Jonathan. He'll join me in just a few minutes. Following him, I'll get a visit from David Lee. David is the founder of Gravity Golf. We'll hear about his principles of the golf swing from the driver all the way through your bag. Chichi Rodriguez has said David is one of the best instructors ever, so we'll find out why. Looking forward to having David with me. He'll join me about 25 minutes from now. And then we'll round out tonight's show with a return visit from our good friend Rob Strano. Rob is over in Destin, Florida. You've probably seen him on the Golf Channel Golf Academy. You've probably also seen him on his TV show, The Golf Kingdom which can be streamed over on Roku and on Amazon Fire as well. So we'll spend some time tonight with Rob talking about the short game. And Rob's got some great tips on a couple of things. First of all, how when we're, you know, seven, eight yards off the green and we've got a back pin placement, talking about club selection and how we can hit that shot closer more consistently. Plus, if we happen to find ourselves a little wayward and we've got an impediment in front of us, whether it's a tree or a bush, how we can figure out what club we need to choose to get the right trajectory over whatever that is and down closer to the hole. So looking forward to having Rob back on the show. He'll join me about 45 minutes from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories and information coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Tee. And as always, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for kicking off your golf season with us. And thank you for taking the journey with me tonight. And you guys know I always like to start the show by reminding you about the great shows that Mitch and Matthew Lawrence have. Please make sure to tell all of your friends and continue to support both of them. Mitch's show is called Talking Golf Getaways. You can stream it online at golftripx.com. It's also available on Audio Boom, Stitcher, and Player.fm. Mitch and his co-host Darren Bunch, they take you around the country and up into Canada as well to some of the great places you can go stay and play. They also let you know about some of the hidden gem courses you may not be aware of. So go online to Golf Trip X, and that's the letter X, so GolfTripX.com, and check out their great podcast. Please also check out Matthew's show, Backspin Golf. He's still on hiatus right now, but his show should start up following March Madness. But you can go online to WLXG.com, which is ESPN Radio in Lexington, Kentucky, and check out any one of their shows from last season available as a podcast. Again, it's called Backspin Golf. It's a fantastic listen, and you can find it on WLXG.com. 
And folks, as you know, we are sponsored by the French Lick Resort. Let's hear what they've got going on up there this winter. It's a Pete Dye masterpiece, the Pete Dye course at French Lick Resort. Pete says its location on one of the highest points in Indiana makes it special. The long views, you can see many 20 and 30 miles from many of the fairways and many of the tees and greens, and, and you can see it in 360 degrees. Donald Ross's hill course put French Lick on the golf map more than 100 years ago. It's where Walter Hagen won the 1924 PGA Championship and the place where today's Symmetra Tour ladies battle each year. It's the ambience around it that makes the golf course. Combine our many resort amenities with legendary golf, and you have a getaway like no other. French Lick Resort is the home of the Senior LPGA Championship, won in 2018 by World Golf Hall of Famer Laura Davies. Play the course's champions play. Plan your trip now, online at FrenchLick.com. Yeah, folks, go online to FrenchLick.com to see for yourself what a wonderful place they've got up there and to book your stay as well. Please check out our friends at the Bobby Jones Apparel Company by going online to BobbyJones.com. They've got their new spring collection out right now. They've got great new spring sweaters, polos, and pants. All look absolutely spectacular. You're going to see Steve Stricker, Miguel Hanel Jimenez, and Ernie Els wearing them out on the Champions Tour this season. Go online to bobbyjones.com and enter the coupon code on the T to save yourselves 20% at checkout. And folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by Taylor Made Sim, featuring the Sim driver designed with a radical new head shape to make the driver both fast and forgiving where you need it most on the downswing. Sim irons with an impressive speed bridge and echo dampening system to deliver a distance iron with forge-like feel in the Sim Fairway Woods with the low CG to help you hit it higher, and a V-Steel sole to launch it even easier out of any lie. Get fit for Sim throughout the entire bag and experience the effect that it's going to have on your entire golf game. Check it out online by going to TaylorMadeGolf.com for more information on all the new Sim family. This segment of the show is sponsored by our friends over at Two Under, Men's Performance Breeze, the unofficial underwear of the PGA Tour, worn by PGA Tour players like Ricky Fowler, David Toms, Jerry Kelly, William McGirt, Jason Kokrak, and Matt Everett, to name just a few. Your buddies are going to think you're a stud if they're even seeing you in your underwear, and that's a whole nother story. And your girlfriend and or wife is going to love the side effects, a visually enhanced profile. Their Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management. It separates a man's most valuable assets from bodily contact to reduce unwanted skin-on-skin contact, providing less chafing, more control, and an altogether more luxurious feel. Start every round two under by wearing the coolest performance briefs on the market and use coupon code ONTHET20 to save 20% off your order at twounder.com. And that's the number two, UNDR.com. All right, now joining me here on Next on the T is Top 100 instructor Jonathan Yarwood. Let me give you some background on Jonathan. Ten years as an elite golf coach at the David Ledbetter Golf Academy. Spent a year as a director of instruction at the Ritz-Carlton in Sarasota, Florida, followed by three years as a director of instruction at the Concession Golf Club, designed by our friend Tony Jacklin and Jack Nicholas as well. He was then recruited to head up a new golf initiative at Loughborough University to create a state-of-the-art biomechanics service. He founded his own golf academy back in 2007. He is now the director of golf at the International Junior Golf Academy in Bluffton, South Carolina. And like I mentioned at the top of the show, he coached Michael Campbell, the 2005 U.S. Open Championship. But he's also coached two U.S. Amateur winners, 
two U.S. girls winners, three AJGA players of the year, plus winners on the PGA, LPGA, European Challenge, Asian and Australia Asian Tours, as well as several amateur victories and other ranked players as well. And I'm very excited. He is with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Jonathan, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Chris. Thanks very much. Uh, that's a lengthy introduction. Uh, I appreciate being on your show. Uh, looking forward to talking to you. Nah, same here. So, Jonathan, anytime I have a first-time guest join me, I always like to understand when you first started playing the game of golf, who first put a golf club in your hands, and, and when the point in time was that you really started to fall in love with the game. Well, my track was a little bit different to normal, really. I'm not from a golfing family. No one in my family uh, play golf. I'm from quite a, a socioeconomically humble background, if you, if I want to put it politely. Um, and so we used to go and caddy at the local golf course. And, uh, you know, one of us, I shouldn't really say, but one of us stole one of the clubs out of one of the bags one day. And, uh, we used to play on the local soccer fields and we'd dig a hole in either end with a shovel and, and 20 of us would share this club and the balls we found on the way around. And, and just whack it from one end of the soccer field to the other, really. And, uh, you know, I fell in love with it, really. I, I, I wanted to understand how to propel it. There's people who could hit it further than me, and I wanted to hit it further than them. And all I owned, actually, at the time was a little bike. And so the guy who stole the club, I said, look, I'll give you my bike, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll have that club off you so I can use it on my own. And, and he did. Um, wow. He, he gave me the club. He gave me the club and... uh uh, he said the deal was a club, one pound and seven balls. He still owes me the one pound and seven balls, unfortunately, because I only got the <laughs> club. But, uh, uh, we, uh, I ended up sneaking on the golf course at night, you know, the usual story. And I couldn't believe the expanse and the beauty of the golf course. I could still feel and smell it now. And the, the fact I could whack my ball anywhere and I had to keep my eye out for the ranger so he didn't kick me off and stuff like that. And then the local course just started, you know, giving free lessons and stuff. So. As I got later in my career now, I'm, I'm, I've always been a big bastion of the underdog and the first tee program and all that sort of stuff to introduce, you know, people from, you know, not, not the, the right side of the tracks really into the game because I think we need to make it more attractive to everybody. And, uh, the elitist image of it is still a little bit of a restrictor to, to, to growth in my view. So I always champion the cause of the people, uh, you know, who, uh, who wouldn't normally play it because that's how I started really. So when did it uh, you know come to you that you know what what I want to do you know as a career and for the rest of my life is is teach the game to to folks whether it's through the you know first tee or just in general how did you finally decide this is what you wanted to do Well uh, you know there's a lot of faith involved with everything that you do isn't there um you know I I, I wanted to play like everyone starts to to want to play and I, I, I kind of in my area there was just the, you know they were just coming out with using video cameras teaching and it was very embryonic at that stage it was like the most talented ones got through but um you know nowadays i can create performance by design but you know i really i just got interested in what made it all tick really and no one seemed to know so you know i got exposed to a very good coach early on in my career called mal tong who was coaching a, a really good amateur player called helen dobson who cleaned up on the amateur circuit one year she won every major amateur uh, trophy you could win um, so I was exposed to good coaching and, and, and uh, et cetera early on. And, you know, I got to the point where I thought, you know, I'm really more interested in how it all works and helping people rather than myself. I could see myself only being relatively average, really, after a while. I was just a skinny little wiry kid uh, with very little guidance. Um, so, you know, I kind of gravitate in that direction. I'm from a family of, of school teachers, actually. Um, so, you know, there was a synergy there, definitely. Um, and I just fell in love with the game. I, you know, when I look back, I've met 
worked with and met some of my heroes now. I've been on planes with, with, with Nick Faldo. I've helped Seve and all those people. I'm from that era, the European golden era of Seve, Woosnam, Faldo, etc. And we used to, I used to sit up at geez, three or four in the morning watching the Masters every year and be late for school the next day because it was so amazing and, and so amazing to see America and what they did with golf, etc. which really piqued my interest. Little did I know I'd end up here. I've been here for 23 years and as a U.S. citizen now, actually very proudly. Um, so, you know, it's it just kind of evolved really. And, uh, I just got really interested in it and I was on a wave of, of how, you know, people try to find out how the game worked really. And I got involved with David Ledbetter, who you mentioned, who was at the cutting edge at the time. And, uh, a lot of our, our ideas and what I'd figured out myself really matched with him. So he took me under his wing and, you know, I really spent a lot of time with him. We don't teach one one swing. I think it's a misconception, and he doesn't teach just one swing either. But he, he's a genius guy with people, and he's a very creative person. And I've kind of inherited that a little bit, and I'll always be grateful for, to him for that. So a lot to a lot to digest there. And I tell you what, one of the things that intrigues so many of us and you know, that love the game is you, you talk about how the game worked. I, I'm not sure that anybody has ever understood how the game worked. Better than Seve. You, you had an opportunity true, to spend yeah, some yeah. time with Seve. Talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, just an artist, isn't he? You know, he's, he's enigmatic. He's one of those people who's just, you know, magnetic, really. He had so much charisma, as a lot of players did in that era. I think we've lost a little bit of that in the modern era as, as every, everything gets more sanitized, more scientific. Um, but, you know, he's just a pure artist. You know, he didn't have a great golf swing. And you look at it technically, if I look at it in my evolving eyes now he definitely didn't have a great golf swing so he used to hit it all over the map really um but his will to win was second to none and you know that's one thing i've found with all the great players i've worked with over the years their grit and their will to win is a common denominator with them all they all swing it different they all do it in different ways they've all got strengths and weaknesses but their common denominator is an absolute will to win and he's got an absolute will to win as Fowler has as all the great players and all the great champions have so um, yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it's been an enormous privilege, really. You know, when you're a boy and you've got pictures of these guys on your, on your uh, bedroom wall, and then all of a sudden you're meeting them and you're flying around in planes with them, it's like sometimes you've got to pinch yourself. <laughs> so in, in getting the opportunity to spend time with them sort of one-on-one, -on -one, if you will, and, it, and in airplanes and sort of in the quiet moments away from the golf course, what was it like getting just to sort of pick their brains and listen to them, listen to them share their stories. What are some of the things you learned from spending those quiet times with them? Well, you just realize that, I think the number one thing for me is you realize they're human. I think, you know, you see this um, media image of a player. You see Tiger Woods, you see Rory, you see Brooks. You don't realize they're just normal guys. You know, they're, they're, they're made of flesh and blood like we are. They, they, you know, they're, they're exposed to unbelievable pressure and unbelievable scrutiny um, and they're under enormous pressure. These guys operate under pressure like none of us know. You know, that if you have a bad radio show or I have a bad, uh, you know, thing on the lesson tee tomorrow, no one's going to know about it really. Um, but these guys, it's, it's in front of three million people. So, you know, you've got to give them massive respect for how they deal with pressure and deal with expectation and how they drive themselves forward. You know, they're never satisfied. They win a, win a major. They want to win another one. They win the British Open. They want to win the Masters. You know, they're just special people, I think, and, and driven people. That's probably the most, the, the biggest thing that stands out. As I say, they all do it in different ways. There's, there's no one way to do it. But the, the overriding thing is the human side of it to me. 
the psychology of it and how they deal with life and how they deal with where they are, their status, etc. I think most people would would kind of crawl under a rock. I would, you know, if I stand on the the first tier Riviera like Tiger Woods did the other day, twenty thousand people watching me. I think I'd probably shank it the bushes. But you know, they just take it for granted and nail it down the middle, and, and away you go. So, you, you, I think you take it all for granted. You know, the pressure they're under, the scrutiny they're under, especially in the modern era. You know, they were under a lot of pressure in those days, but nowadays it's even more with social media and you know the instant gratification generation and the amount of criticism that can come across, which is grossly unfair in my view. Playing the toughest sport in the world, uh, you've got to give them a little bit of slack. You know, someone like Jordan Speed, for example, who's lost a bit of form. You know, give the guys some slack and understand that, you know, golf cyclical goes round in, in circles. So you play well for a while, you play average, then you play poorly, then you rebuild, and then you start playing well again. It's cyclical. And people have got to understand that. You're not going to play well every week. You know, the guys on the tour that I've dealt with play 30 weeks a year. They probably play well four or five weeks a year, really. So, you know, understand that, that that's part of the game. But, uh, yeah, in general, just just uh, you know, amazing amazing people, but quite vulnerable people as well. When you're with them in private, I think is the overriding thing, and very human. And Jonathan, like I say, you got to uh, work with Michael Campbell. He, he won the 2005 U.S. Open. Talk about the work that you did with Michael and the th- stuff you continue to work on over the years. And and what was it like being a part of a major championship victory like that? Well, it's obviously a a kind of victory out of nowhere to some extent, but it wasn't really. If you look at his history, he's he's won 15 times around the world. He's made, you know, X million dollars in prize money. He's been a very, very consistent, very, very high quality player. Um, but again, it was an enormous privilege to be involved in something like that. Um, you know, he was the first person to, well, one of the few people, sorry, to qualify in the UK in the new Europe, in the new international qualifying tournament. He, He made a six foot putt on the lap. No one knows this or remembers it. He made a six-foot putt on the last at Walton Heath to get into the U.S. Open. He got into the U.S. Open as a qualifier and won it. Um, I, I think it was two or three people have done that. It's very rare. Um, and you know, when I, I met him at the tournament. Here's a little story about it. I met him at the tournament and uh, the, a few days before, and he, he came off a decent start in Europe. But he said, oh, my putting's so bad, my putting's so bad. And he, historically, he's been a great putter. And so he came with a broom handle putter. And I said, what are you doing? What are you doing? You've never used one of those in your life. So it's in panic mode. So I said, okay, let's, I used to do a lot of ball performance work because I spent a bit of time with Scotty Cameron and I learned about what's called the ball performance. So I filmed the ball, the ball dynamic. So I said to Michael, okay, we'll film the ball dynamics with your broom putter and then we'll film the ball dynamics with your normal putter and then we'll make an informed choice on that. I try and use opinion as little as possible. Um, and it turns out the ball performance dynamics were worse with his broom handle than they were with his his uh, normal stroke. So all I did was just rebuilt his normal stroke into his normal blueprint and then added a really good routine into it. And then, you know, talked a lot the whole week about, you know, really low expectations, going through the process, not getting carried away with, you know, all the hoopla and all the media interest. I'd say things, ironically weird things to him, like everyone thinks you're going to choke. No one's going to notice you. This was on Saturday night. No one will notice you if you fall away. Don't worry about it. There's no pressure on you whatsoever. There's just 18 tees, 18 greens. You get on with it. Let's see what happens. And he kind of took that attitude with him. And, you know, all credit to him. You know, he stared down Tiger in his prime, which uh, not many people have done. And, uh, you know, he he, he won it by, I think, three shots in the end. Um, So all credit to him. And uh, it was a remarkable period in his life and my life. And 
you know, some people can deal with it, some people can't. If you look at major championship winners, you know, there's a, a category of people who win one and kind of fade away because they can't kind of handle the pressure to some extent, the expectations. And there's a school where they win a major and they go on and win three or four. Well, Michael's obviously in the former. Um, and even though at the end of that year, actually, he went and won the biggest check in golf, $2 million at, uh, at Wentworth, actually. Um, but, you know, that was the zenith of his career. There's no doubt about that. And, uh, you know, listen, I'm just a bit part player in the back, um, but I'm very happy to be a part of it. I can I can show you my contribution. Um, and it's a real privilege and a real honor to be to be part of that, actually. So, Jonathan, a couple of things there. You you mentioned building a really good routine. Is that something that is individual to Michael and all the different players that you work with? Or is there a kind of string that ties all of that together that all of us could learn a little bit about developing a good routine, especially on the putting group? Well, I think, yeah, I think in putting, you know, it's relatively standardized. You know, I try and create some individualization, but with him at that particular time and, and something I've actually used today with someone today, actually, it's very easy to, to in a routine, make it not a routine, but make it a ritual. But a ritual has got no emotion in it. It's got no engagement in it, whereas a routine has got full engagement. Um, so what I created for him was uh, what we called at the time Superman eyes. I don't know if you remember Superman, where he's got lasers coming out of his eyes. Um, that was his kind of visual. It's like, okay, what I want you to do, if the putt, if your practice, if your putt takes 1.2 seconds to get to the hole, you, in your practice routine, you are going to walk your eyes down in 1.2 seconds and absorb every piece of information along, uh, from your ball to the hole. And then you're going to walk them back in what we called at the time real time. So you're trying to really simulate what is going to happen when you actually hit that putt. So he walks his eyes back and forth burns his eyes along the line like Superman, and then steps over to the putt, burns his eyes in real time again, and then makes the putt. And if you try that, if you really put some thought, some emotion, you slow the the stare down, as it were, you really burn your eyes along the line like there's lasers coming out, you'd be surprised. You're so much more engaged. You see so much more. And I'll guarantee you make more putts. Jonathan, I want to talk about the modern game. You talked about ball dynamics a few moments ago. So let's talk about the modern game and, and distance gains from technology, whether that's the golf clubs themselves or from the golf ball perspective. Where do you land in that so, that whole debate? Well, I'll tell you, you know, there's so much talk about, you know, the golf balls, this, the golf balls, that. No question the golf ball is part of the equation. No question. It is not just the golf ball. I, I deal with elite uh, performance athletes every day. I've got a Swing Catalyst 3D force plate studio. So we look at ground reaction forces. That's part of it. Trackman is a massive part of it and very overlooked. I can look at the ballistics of someone's ball, the club. Um, I can do anything now. I can uh, Basically, we can look inside the engine of the car as it's going down the road, see the compression, see how, how the engine is efficient or not. Stuff I could not see and could not quantify 10 or 15 years ago. Then you've got nutrition. Then you've got sports science. Then you've got the gym. Then you've got golf club fitting. Then you've got golf club shafts, then you've got heads, you've got technology. It's not just the ball. We've just created a more modern sport. Like every sport has evolved into a more modern sport. Tennis has evolved into a modern sport. American football has evolved into a modern sport. Baseball has evolved into a modern sport. They use track man in baseball now. I don't know if you guys know that. You know, the, you know, modern technology has creeped into every sport. It's just a, just how modern life is. I think it's, it's really exciting. It's great. I love the fact that people hit it miles. I love the, the ballistic aggressive approach of modern golf 
we have lost a little bit along the way, I think. Um, and something possibly might have to try to rein it in a little bit at the professional level because it doesn't really impact the amateur level, but definitely maybe the professional level. But it's a, it's a multitude of things. It's multi-layered. As I said to you, you know, you, the synopsis is, you know, in the past when I first started, just the inverted commas, talented people made it. Well, nowadays I can create performance by design. So I can, I know the code and we know the code as instructors, not just me, many instructors. By using technology, we know the code. So you can create a code and crack the code for each player and therefore create an army of great players, which is what we have. If you look around the world, the difference between a guy winning on the PGA Tour and a guy winning on a, a small tour somewhere in Argentina is very small. There's such a fine line there because so many more people have got access to this great information. They know what they're doing. They're in the gym. They're doing TPI. They're on TrackMan. They're on 3D force plates. You know, as I say, it, 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 there's no, the guesswork is taken out. I often say when I'm coaching that I don't teach by opinion. I used to teach by opinion in the past because all I had was a video camera, which is basically a 2D image or something. It's like the, you know, like the X-ray, really. And now I've got the MRI. So now I'm not, I don't have an opinion. Now all I've, all I'm using is facts and factual data. And then I'm going to make an intervention with you. And then I'll change the data and prove, you know, that the intervention makes sense. So, you know, all those things added up create this, almost this monster to some extent that's kind of out of control a little bit. No one really knows how to cage it. Um, there's a lot of things involved, involved in caging that thing. I mean, there's the golf club manufacturers, there's the ball manufacturers, et cetera. But I think the consensus across the board is that something, you know, really has to be done about it because you can't just keep building bigger and bigger courses and bigger real estate. You know, you have to be realistic with it. So, um, it'll be interesting to see the solutions, the power that be, uh, create. Um, but something definitely has to be done. And one of the things I would do which I've talked to a few people at the higher level, is just make more intricate golf courses. You know, look at something like Royal Melbourne. You know, that brings the ball back, basically, because there's intelligent bunkering. It's rock hard. You've got to position your ball. It's an artistic golf course. You know, that reigns the field back and makes makes distance less important. So I think the architects as well have got quite a a big say in the future of the game, in my view. But uh, it's definitely not just one thing. It's definitely not the ball. I know that's a hot topic, but it's, it's a multitude of things. Jonathan, one more before I let you go. And uh, like I mentioned in your intro, you had an opportunity to work at the Concession Golf Club. Tony Jacklin has been a wonderful guest with me over the years. And that course was designed by Mr. Jacklin and Jack Nicholas in honor of their Ryder Cup match. I'm just curious if you had an opportunity to spend time with, with either or both of them while, while you were uh, director of golf there. Yeah, I met uh, Mr. Nicholas briefly, but I spent quite a lot of time with Tony and his son. Actually, I started coaching his son a little bit. And again, you know, talk about the seat of privilege. You know, I don't think there's a better golf course anywhere in the world than that place and a better ambiance. And, a, a, you know, the Cassidy people that own it are, are great people. And, you know, the whole facility is fantastic. I don't think there's anything better, really. Um, you know, it, it was such a tough golf course, really. Uh, I remember Zinger went out there and shot like 89 first time he played because it was so tough. Wow. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I coached a guy who, who shot 29 on the back nine, actually, because uh, he mastered how it was. It was so intricate and such a beautiful design golf course. But they've, they've altered the greens marginally, I think, and it's, it's very playable nowadays. And uh, so it's a beautiful place. And, you know, being a British person, you know, growing up with all these icons and heroes, and, and obviously Tony Jacklin's the trailblazer for the British golf, 
what he did in golf uh, really set the, 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 the open the, the doors really for Faldo and all the other guys, which were my heroes. Tony's a massive hero of mine, and to spend time with him is amazing. I've been you know around his house and had Sunday roast with him and Yorkshire puddings with him and Astrid, and uh, helped his son out a little bit. And he actually made uh, I don't know if you know this, but in the in the summer in Florida it gets so hot you don't want to go and play. And he's 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 incredibly talented at a thing called marquetry which is where you kind of layer different types of wood on each other and make like a, a painting almost out of wood. Um, it's quite remarkable. It's very intricate. And he's, it's incredible what he did. He presented me with a, a picture of myself, actually a portrait made in marquetry uh, of myself on my 40th birthday. And he, he did one of Ben wow. Hogan. Oh, it's remarkable stuff. I've, I've got, uh, I've still got a treasure. He made a, a salt shaker for, and a, a pepper shaker for my daughters and engraved it on the bottom. And I didn't really know who he was. I said, look, in a few years time, when you're older, you research who that guy is and you'll keep those for the rest of your life. And again, just part of the journey I've been on to meet these people and, and spend time with them. It, it, it's, it's just a, a privilege and a blessing. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just feel so privileged to, to, to have to have gone on that journey with, with everyone. And Mr. Jackman, uh, you know, he's just a legend to me. Jonathan, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing and follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media? Yeah, I do a ton of stuff on social media. I'm posting uh, videos every day uh, with no charge. Um, just my name, at jonathanyarwood.com. Uh, Jonathan Yarwood, sorry. Uh, my website is jonathanyarwood.com. Uh, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N Yarwood. Um, you'll see loads of tips and, 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 you know, interact with people and, uh, you can get an online lesson on my website and, uh, you can see what I'm up to at the IJGA where I'm currently director, www.ijga.com and see how the modern kids are training. So, uh, yeah, it's all exciting. Well, Jonathan, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come and be a part of the show. So many other things I wanted to get into with you tonight. I hope you'll come back and join me again soon because you're fantastic. I will. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Take care, Jonathan. All the best to you and your family. Look forward to catching up soon. Thanks, man. That is Jonathan Yarwood, Y-A-R-W-O-O-D, and at Jonathan Yarwood on social media. Great stuff, folks. I'm telling you, when you look at all of his lessons and his videos and the things that he has been uh, sort of witness to in the, throughout the course of golf history, absolutely stunning. And I uh, really hope we get the opportunity to catch up with him. He is uh, He is a delight. All right, before I get to my next guest, David Lee, I want to give a shout out to our friends at the Ben Hogan Golf Company. Now, folks, as you heard me say all last year, if you haven't hit Ben Hogan Iron since maybe the 80s or the 90s, do yourself a favor. They've got a demo program, so you can get a demo iron from either their Fort Worth, PTX Pro, or Edge Irons. You can take it out on the range and compare it to whatever it is you've got. All Ben Hogan wood, irons, and wedges are handcrafted one at a time in their Fort Worth, Texas factory. So, no mass production, no shortcuts. You can order custom-made wood, irons, and wedges by going online to benhogangolf.com, and they're going to build those clubs to your specifications, and best of all, charge you a fraction of the typical retail price. So go check out their complete line of golf equipment, bags, and accessories online at benhogangolf.com. To play a ball with ultimate spin and stopping power, you need a physics-defying cover with molecular bonds that stretch but don't break. To play a ball that goes far and feels soft, you need a fast layer core with incredible feel and maximum distance. And they're only in the new Z-Star and Z-Star XV golf balls, and they're only from Strixon Golf. This segment of the show was sponsored by our friends at Golf Pride. In golf, light grip pressure releases power. 
Golf Pride engineered a secret that pros know. A larger, lower hand encourages lighter pressure. Plus 4 technology is designed with four additional layers, which reduces tension in the lower hand to generate more power. Play Plus 4 and release the secret pros know. Now available on Tour Velvet. The winningest grip on Tour. Grip confidence. Grip golf pride. All right, now joining me here on the French Lick Resort guest line is David Lee. Let me give you a little bit of background on David. He was introduced to the game at the age of four by his grandfather. As a teenager, David won the Arkansas State High School Golf Championship, played his college golf at the University of Arkansas, where he was captain of the team. He joined the PGA Tour in 1970. He has dissected the golf swing and has developed a different philosophy in his approach to the swing than anybody, and you can find out about it. It's called Gravity Golf. Go online to check it out at gravitygolf.com. And I'm very honored he is with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, David, Chris Mascaro here. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, you're very welcome. Uh, um, I appreciate you inviting me. David, going back to when you first started playing the game, talk about your grandfather and how he got you started. <laughs> well, he got me started when I was four years old when Hogan's second book came out, The Fundamentals of Modern Golf, came out in a I think a five-part series in Sports Illustrated, and he couldn't wait for the next edition to come out. He would get me in his living room and twist me into all these positions and <clears throat> put my elbows together and my knees together and got my hands on the club as recommended by the by Hogan. And he would get me in all these positions, tuck handkerchiefs underneath my arms, and then he'd <clears throat> tell me, all right, move. And I go, but Paul, I can't move from here. I'm stuck. And he would yell at me and he'd go, move, damn it. <laughs> I can, I can hear his voice like it was yesterday. I swear to you. And that's been, <laughs> that's been 71 years ago for me. So, wow. Yeah. He, and I, I started off under the influence of that book as have so many people. And I mean, I always admired Hogan's perseverance and his dedication to practice. And he just had incredible level of discipline and a great desire to overcome the things that he did in his life, which were considerable and still became one of the best players of all time. It was later, you know, but my influences over my golf swing when I was young were not only Hogan, but Arnold Palmer. Palmer was about 14 years older than than I am, and I grew up. He was my hero and always thought he was a fantastic individual. And when I was older, had the opportunity to know him and work with him. I've never met anybody in the game that was a better gentleman than Arnold. David, that the swing that you learned from Mr. Hogan's book and that your grandfather mm-hmm. worked with you on, but it, it it certainly worked well for you. I mean, it worked well through high school and college. It it got you to the PGA Tour. And, and as I was reading your bio, you were always a kid that liked to tear things apart and tinker with them to learn how they work. At what point did you decide that, you know what, maybe this swing isn't the best way to do it. Let me tear it apart and start over. I spent four years on the PGA Tour, 70, 71, and 72, and then I left for 
a few years, went back in 77, had a bad hand injury before the season started in 77. Thought my left wrist was only sprained, but actually I had fractured uh, one of the small bones, the lunar navicular bone in the middle of my left wrist, and played all year just taking anti-inflammatory drugs. I had to had the hand x-rayed in San Diego before the Andy Williams tournament in 1977. And the doctor that looked at me x-ray on Friday afternoon at 4.30, he was ready to bolt and missed a hairline fracture in there. And I played all year with a broken hand and the bone wound up dying. So I went for a period of six years after that where I could barely lift a water glass with my left hand. And during that time, you know, it it stopped my playing career just when I was becoming a very good player. I got into doing swing research full time at that point and have been doing it ever since. I also Uh, read that you you spent some time fishing with Mickey Mantle and it led to some light bulb moments for you to try some things differently. Do you mind sharing that story? No, I'd be glad to. In in, uh, 1973, I had taken a job as a production manager for a fishing tackle company in Nashville, Tennessee, called Zorro Bait Company, and they made spinnerbaits. And I had just made a tackle box full of spinnerbaits for for Mickey Mantle. And I was out on the uh, practice tee that afternoon because I had won my sectional PGA championship at the end of 1972, and I was exempt to play in the PGA championship at Canterbury uh, the following summer. And I was practicing at Richland Country Club in Nashville. Uh, My good friend Joe Taggart allowed me to come out there and practice, and I was talking to a doctor one afternoon or that afternoon, and we started talking about baseball. And he said, baseball players stride into the ball when they hit it. And I said, yeah, yeah, they do. And I stepped up and made a swing where I actually put my feet into motion, just like a baseball hitter. It was the first time in my entire golf life of, oh, 25 years at that point in time where I moved the golf ball where my footwork was quick enough to get my body mass to the golf ball before my arms and shoulders got there. I had fought with a fought with a hook going at it like Arnold with the, my shoulders and arms. I had fought with a hook for a long, long time, for years, trying to block the hook out like Arnold did. And that afternoon, I stepped up, made the swing with my feet in motion, and my body mass got the ball first, and the ball flew just like a bullet, as straight as an arrow, was not even thinking about hooking, had a completely different sound. And this is exactly what I had seen when I was on the tour in the first three years of the 70s. I used to watch uh, Nicholas and Trevino and Tom Weisskopf hit golf balls all the time, and their golf ball never looked like it wanted to go left. It had a totally different sound than mine. And I'd ask them how they got that kind of solidarity and ball flight. And they just look at me and shrug their shoulders and go, well, that's just the way we hit it. 
And I thought, well, you guys are keeping a secret. You're not going to tell me. <laughs> and later on, I had the opportunity to work on Jack and Trevino uh, fairly extensively. And I later found that it wasn't that they wouldn't tell me. It was that they couldn't. They had stumbled into the feeling of moving the golf ball with their body mass instead of their strength. And it fat, you know, the way they hit the golf ball fascinated me, and I was determined to learn what they were doing. But until I hit golf balls with my feet moving, I never had the timing in my body to do it. Arnold swung the golf club in a one-one timing, where his shoulders and arms went back with his weight shift and came down as he shifted back to his front foot. Jack and Trevino have their weight shift complete to the right foot and back to the left foot by the time they complete the shoulder turn. Then they just they land against their front leg, deflect to an off vertical position, just like a rotary place kicker in football. And that counterfall releases their entire core mass against the golf ball. They hit the golf ball with every pound in their body that's underneath their head compared to the way most players it with just the strength of their shoulders and arms. They beat their core mass to the golf ball, and that's why they have to work so much harder. If you watch various tour players hit the golf ball, some of them look like they're barely swinging, and others look like they're jumping out of their sock. And the ones that have that swing with the least amount of effort have a perfect partnership with gravity. They've learned, even if they didn't learn it intentionally, they have developed the feel of doing it. Most people in the modern era who have learned to swing that way uh, have developed it and developed it from watching Jack because he, he was the person that I learned it from, from watching his golf swing. Trevino had a bigger reroute, so I wasn't trying to copy him. But Jack stayed fairly close to the plane. A gravity player swings in a in a two plane swing where the down plane is underneath the back plane, but they hit the golf ball. You, if you watch Freddie Couples, he uses no more than he he uses no more than half the effort that most people use when they when they hit when they strike a golf ball. In fact, Freddie doesn't hit the golf ball at all. His golf swing, golf swings of modern day gravity players according to the rules of golf, are not legal. How? you know that? Huh? No. That's, I'm curious how. Well, you ask people from the USGA about the rule book, and they'll tell you they pride themselves on the fact that every word in the rule book means exactly what it says. And the rule book says that the golf ball must be fairly struck at. Freddie doesn't do that. In Freddie's mind, at the top of the backswing, the ball's not on the ground. It's on the end of the club. And all he does is makes a counterfall, which is practically invisible to the camera or the naked eye. And he just drops his arms and the rotation of his body slings the ball from the club. There is absolutely no intent whatsoever to make a union between the club and the ball. He, he throws the ball. He doesn't hit it. The pickup of the ball path of the swing. You could put a sack over Jack's head and he could hit the ball just as well as he could looking at it. Because all he does is make them, he, he makes contact with the ball when he takes his stand. And then he just 
heaves his arm, sets it into motion, heaves his arms, turns back, weight moves back to the front foot, he deflects into the counterfall and just drops his arms and the turn of the body slings the arms. Pick up of the ball so that's, is completely incidental. That's interesting. I mean, I'm trying to follow that, but but one of the things that I, I'm I'm hearing you say, David, is kind of the use of of their core. And correct me if I'm wrong here, especially when we talk about someone like Freddie or or Ernie else. They use the core muscles to kind of sling their arms through. Once they've gone through in the backswing, when they're coming down in the downswing. They're just sort of slinging their arms through, picking up the golf ball along the way and launching it off the driver. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. It's as if the ball were not even. It's as if the ball were not even there. Yeah. And the gravity, the gravity swing that they use is a combination of of two illegal moves in the golf swing. You can't scrape the ball by dragging the club along the ground. You can't spoon it by putting. You can't take one of your, like taking an eight iron or something and put it against the ball and then have no backswing and just throw it forward. So, so the the rule so David, book obviously should be amended to just to say with intent of advancing the ball. Yeah, interesting. So, David, one of the one of the other things that I think, and if if I've read. Uh, read your uh, stuff on your website again, gravitygolf.com, and understood it correctly. Um, I think where a lot of us go wrong is we have a lot of tension in in our swings because we're trying to hit it so hard. You mentioned a, a moment ago, you know, some guys look like they they swing easy, and that's the the Freddie Couples and Ernie Els, and then you've got guys coming out of their shoes like Justin Thomas, uh, almost literally coming out of his shoes when he's hitting the golf ball. So a lot of us are trying to get club head speed and we're trying to use our muscles in our arms and we're choking. We got a death grip on the golf club because we're trying to hit it so hard. And that's really where we go wrong, isn't it? Absolutely. When you tighten your arms coming down, if if you do it even slightly early, it diminishes the speed of your core, doesn't increase it. So that if you're going to use a combination of power sources where you use gravity and core rotation and your shoulders and arms, which is what a lot of the long drive guys do. They try to use every available power source in their body. They use their core mass. They use their feet turn their body. They use their shoulders and arms, and they use their hands at impact. And it's a nightmare to time everything up, but they only have to hit the grid one out of eight times. Right. It's a completely... This long drive is a different sport than playing professional golf. The only similarity is the fact that you use a golf club and a golf ball. So, David, for for those of us that are that are struggling a little bit because we're hitting the ball to the right, we've got a slice, or we're blocking <clears throat> ourselves out. Is that a result of too much pressure, too much grip on you know gripping too hard on the golf club? How do how do we kind of get ourselves back to hitting the ball down the center? Well, anytime you block it off to the right or slice it, that's an indicator of a tension increase of the wrist late in the downswing. If you tighten early in the downswing, you'll come over the top of it and dead pull it. Or if the face is open, you can hit a big slice. If you start, if you allow your arms to drop 
And if you've gripped it properly, if you just turn your body and, sl- and allow your wrist to relax, see the freedom in the in the downswing has got to be in the wrists. And if the wrists are free, the hands and will release, the right hand pronates, the left hand supinates, the club head pronates and covers the ball. It's just like a pitcher throwing the ball. He has to have his have his fingers curved around the baseball. If he tried to throw it with his with his index and middle finger straight, the ball would roll right off the end of his fingers. Gravity players, players that use their body mass to lead the swing, have to have the club slightly trapped at impact, like the just like a high life player has a curve in the sesta. Otherwise, the he couldn't control the trajectory of. It. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. It's the same it same can... principle that caused the rotary place kick to overtake the straightaway kick. You're. I don't know how old you are. How old are you? I'm 54. I remember the straight-on place kickers. All right. Well, let's see. That was one of the fastest changes in sport technique in history. These little European soccer uh, kickers were coming in, and they were two-thirds of the size but could kick the ball further and straighter than the than the guys like Tom Dempsey and uh, Lou Grosen, Blanda, and the guys that – you know, that kicked with a straightaway kick. The reason it changed so fast was because the physics of it are better. Can You can see those guys when they land on their plant foot before they kick, they, they land right. and flop into the counterfall, and then they kick it with the weight of their entire body. A straight-on kicker just kicks it with the weight of his leg. Good point. That's an interesting point. David, just uh, a couple more before I let you go. And, and uh, you've mentioned Lee Trevino and Jack Nicholas. You've also got uh, some great accolades from uh, Chichi Rodriguez, so much so that Chichi, Chichi said you might be the best teacher that ever lived. Talk about getting to work with Chichi and uh, how much something like that means to you, some of that feedback. Well, I've worked with Chichi a great deal, uh, basically starting in about 1990. I started working with him then. He won five tournaments on the senior tour that year. And Chi-Chi has seen a lot of my students and how quickly they develop. We take a total beginner. Uh, any healthy adult that knows how to practice properly can have themselves at professional level distance within 60 to 90 days. And that only, and it takes them about 10 or 12 minutes a day of practice. Uh, for about four days a week, but you have to understand how to practice correctly. You go out there and just try to hit the ball with the strength of your arms and shoulders. You can stand there till the day hell freezes over and you'll never hit one golf ball like Freddie Couples because that's not what he's doing. Most people, 90, I would say at least 96 or 7, maybe 98% of everybody that plays the game has some level of tension increase in the arms coming down where they actually flex their muscle. Freddie just, his arms drop as softly as if he just let his arm relax and just dropped it in his lap. So, David, how can our listeners, I mean, there's, there's a lot of technical stuff in, in uh, the things that you've talked about. I think it's, you've got some great videos out there. you got some great stuff out on YouTube. How can our listeners find out more about Gravity Golf 
and learn more about the things that you're teaching? They can go to gravitygolf.com. Uh, my son has just completed the work on uh, uh, a new book that we've done together that is a, a 50-something lesson book called the Gravity Golf Challenge. Any of your listeners can, uh, and we also uh, do online instruction. He does that uh, a great deal. They get a uh, 50% discount on their first month of instruction online. And there's a coupon that's, uh, I think, uh, <laughs> I think the, uh, I read it earlier tonight. We just finished moving from Florida to South Carolina and I'm, I'm about to go face down. I think it. Uh, I think coupon <laughs> code is next on the first tee. All right. So, Very cool. Yeah, they can. Uh, anybody that is interested in understanding gravity golf should go go right online, and we've got a ton of stuff on there. We've got a bunch of stuff on YouTube, and uh, the science is fascinating. You know, one thing that makes golf really difficult for people is that golf is a very um multidiscipline sport there's a there's a great deal of physics involved that are simple physics they're not complex there's a ton of physiology and there's a great deal of geometry involved and there's also the voodoo science which is psychology so you, <laughs> i don't know a great deal i probably know more about physiology than any of the four sciences but i've got 70 plus years of playing golf. So we're doing some really cool things. In fact, uh, we finally, about three years ago, I'd been doing research on the yips for uh, 42 years and finally figured out exactly what causes the yips and how to fix And we can fix the yips in 30 minutes in anybody. Wow. All right. So, so there's that's a something we could, talk, we, could, we could talk about that the next time. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you exactly what causes the yips and how to fix them. That is definitely a great topic for next time. I we got to get we got to right. get to that soon. All right, well, David. I, I can't you. thank you. Uh, I can't thank you enough for your time. You've been fantastic. Hopefully, we can get that. We can get you back on the show again real soon. Very educational tonight. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your uh, having me on and enjoyed visiting with you. Same here. David, have a great night. We'll catch up again soon. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Bye-bye. See you, David. That is David Lee. GravityGolf.com. Go check it out. I got to get him back on the show just to talk about the yips piece because God knows I could certainly use some tips with that. All right. Before I get to my next guest, Rob Strano, I want to give a shout out to our friends over at Positive Vibes Golf. You can find them online at PositiveVibesGolf.com and follow them on Twitter at PVibesGolf. Their head covers and putter covers are a unique way to keep your mind focused on positive thoughts because they're a great on-course training aid because they help you stay positive by putting positive, happy images in your mind. Every time you walk back to your golf bag and you look at your head covers, you're going to put a smile on your face. I say all of that by going online to PositiveVibesGolf.com and give them a follow on Twitter at PVibesGolf. And folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends over at the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. 
All right, now back in making his eighth appearance with me here on the French Lick Resort guest line is Rob Strano. Let me remind you about Rob's background. He's from St. Louis, Missouri. As a junior player in the St. Louis District, Rob won the individual low stroke average trophy and the individual total points trophy in 1981. He was a three-time All-Southwestern Conference and two-time All-Area player in high school. Played his college golf at Centenary College in Louisiana. He played out on the PGA Nationwide and Hooters NGA Tour for 15 years, winning five times. He's now one of the top instructors in the game for both kids and adults. He is annually recognized by U.S. Kids as one of their top instructors. Plus, he's one of the few teachers teaching the game to deaf children. You've probably seen Rob on the Golf Channel Golf Academy, where he's a lead instructor, and on his TV show, The Golf Kingdom, which is outstanding. You can watch it online by downloading the Roku or the Amazon Fire app. And I'm very excited that Rob is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Rob, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great, Chris. And I've got two words for you, two words only to start this. You ready? I'm ready. Are your listeners ready? Everybody ready? Two words. Adam Scott. Adam Scott, Adam can, you believe, Scott. can you believe golf? Is it any better <laughs> in golf when, I mean, anybody can win. Adam has been quiet for so long, a great player, and the kick to click goes out and wins at a, at a storied venue like Riviera. How awesome is this great game? Because you never know. You just don't ever know when a guy's going to get it and get on a roll or just all of a sudden Adam Scott wins. And, you know, and we're talking about him again. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, Robin, and I was talking with Jonathan Yarwood at the top of the show about how uh, golf is cyclical. He was talking about, you know, you know, we were talking a little bit about Jordan Spieth, about how things are going really well and then things start to not go so well. Then things go poorly and then they come back around to playing well again. And uh, that's sort of been a couple of the different versions of Adam Scott, right? We've seen Adam go through this a couple of different times now. Yeah. And, he, you know, he was a, he was a, a top ten, top twenty player in the world forever, and then kind of lost his way. And like you said, he got he started struggling with getting quick, needed to calm his move down a little bit, and you know, and boom, you know, it's it's just a game that a tour player knows they're one something away from being right there and winning. And I tell people that are always asking me about playing fantasy golf and who to pick and who's a long shot. I say this. When you're picking a player for this coming week, go back to last week's tournament. So go back to Riviera, look at the cut line scores, and find someone who missed the cut, and look at their last nine holes they played, and find the guy who shot 31 in his last nine and missed the cut, or maybe birdied four of the last five, because you know what happened? Figured it out. And now he's chomping at the bit to peg it this week and get going. So either he started to trust what his coach was telling him, or he finally said, you know what, I'm going to just do what my coach is telling me and see what happens. And all of a sudden, he trusted it, and all of a sudden, wham, away he went. Now he's dying to stick a tee in the ground on Thursday morning, and he's going to have those jitters because he knows he's got a chance. So, Rob, that that begs a couple of things, right? I mean, you talk about someone starting to trust what their coach had been telling them which leads part partially into the mental side of the game. So for me, when like, you know, and, and I had the privilege of spending some time with you last summer out of Kelly Plantation and you took a look at my swing and, and you gave me some tips and, and I started, you know, ah, that doesn't feel right. That That's different. But, you know, as I have continued to practice and loading up on my right side and then coming back 
to my left side and getting through that, it just made a, a marked difference in how I strike the golf ball. So talk about trying to work with a player like me or you know any of your students that you work with, where you, you've really started to change some things and then it takes a little while and it finally does start to click in. And then the mental piece starts to believe in it and how much of a difference that makes in our golf. That's a great question. I'm going to, I'm going to twist it just a little. And I'm going to dispel a myth from taking a lesson or improving your game. And the myth is you hear this all the time. I'm going to get worse before I get better. That yeah. myth right there hinders the trust component of making an improvement. Because if you're working with a top coach and they know what they're doing, you know, we've got all these expensive launch monitors that we use. I'm a Flight Scope Advisory Board member. I've been with them for a long time. And we've got these expensive launch monitors, but we all have an inexpensive one. It's called the golf ball. The golf ball won't lie to you. And I tell my players, the right thing will make the ball fly better. I'm about to give you the first right thing. And your job is to do what I ask you to do. Because if you don't do what I ask you to do or do what you're doing right now, you're going to get the same result. If you do what I ask you to do, you're going to find the ball flies better. So that then it's easy to trust because you know that if you do what I want you to do, you're going to get a better outcome. If you do in between, it'll be a little better. If you do what you're doing, you'll have the same outcome you had when you showed up. Now what you got to do is get your head to, your head to flip the switch and go, you know what? I've hit five or six shots here in a row doing what Rob asked me to do. And dang, that ball isn't hooking like it used to. It's, it's a soft drop. It may not be the, 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 the height we want or the, the solid, you know, compression we want yet, but we've cleaned up a, a big hook or a big flight and then you've got to take it and trust it. And the golf ball, if you let it teach you trust, it'll help you understand that what you're being given makes you improve. And then it's your job to go, okay, brain, these are better. Let's keep doing this. And that's how it transitions. I always loved as a player when I went to work with my coach. Of course, it was a different era. We didn't have the coach in there every week. We would wait until we were playing poorly to see our coach. So I always liked when I had something to work on that made the ball better because I knew the next tournament, if I was working on it and I did it, I may have been stuck in the rut of shooting 74s and 5s. But if I did this one thing we were working on, that ball's flying better and that 74-5 is going to be 68 or 9. So, Rob, let's, let's talk a little bit about tips. Right. Because one of the things that most of the country and you know, all of us don't get to live where you do there in Destin, Florida. So it's still pretty cold in the majority of the country, but we're starting to see signs of spring. You know, March isn't that far away. And when we think March, then we start to think masters and, and, uh, you know, golf and all of that sort of thing. But we've probably had our golf clubs and our golf swings in the closet for a few months now. So before we get out there and start making bad habits, do you have a, a recommendation for, for the, for the people that are now starting to come out and come back to you, your students who may not have played for a while to make sure that we, we get back at the, with the right fundamentals and we don't start off with bad habits? Okay. Great question. And it's an, it's an easy one. Okay. Everybody that's listening, if you're using Roku or Amazon, go there and download a, a channel for my golf show, the golf kingdom. So Roku, Amazon, find the golf kingdom, download the show. Start watching my show. That's the way to get going on the right track. We got fun <laughs> stuff to have you go on the right track. Right there. That's what you got to do to get started off right. Get with me on the Golf Kingdom. We'll have some fun helping your game. But one thing you want to do is start off, start off small. Go to the golf course. Hit some chip shots. Work on some pitch shots around the short game area. Hit some putts. Start with five footers, three footers. 
and just go out and say, you know what? I'm going to practice some short game. I want to rediscover where the bottom of my arc is with chips and pitches. I want to feel the ball in the face again and just start off doing that. We're in such a hurry to get out there and, and play and shoot a score that we forget that maybe just feeling the ball in the face again, getting our hands re-educated as to how the club feels on our hands is the more common sense way to do it to where we have set then as we build and maybe walk before we can run. And then go out there, you know, go to the golf course the next time and take four clubs. Take all your short clubs and your putter. And then hit shots with your full swing. You know, the old added six digs a long ball. Yeah, that's true. But they don't dig the long ball that's in Mr. Haverkamp's backyard where he just took out his window because he never hit a driver <laughs> too much. <laughs> so they don't dig that, that big, that big, you know, crop duster slice to the right that is, you know, 50 yards forward and 150 yards to the right. So build up to a full swing. Hit some short irons. If you have a successful practice hitting short irons with a full swing, next time you show up, add two more clubs and add two more clubs the next time. And then you're out there with your full bag and you've kind of incrementally got it going. All right. So let's, let's take that to the next step. And, and we talk about the importance of practicing your short game on the show a lot. And, and I love one of the tips that you did on the golf kingdom, uh, where you were just a couple of feet off of the green, but the pin was way in the back. You had maybe 70 or 80 feet away. And many of us uh, are, are a one-club chipper. We grab that sand wedge, and we're going to use that sand wedge all the time instead of getting creative. What's a better option for us when we've got a lot of green to cover and uh, we want to get closer more consistently? Well, the best option is the first thought you should have. The first thought you should have when looking at any chip shot or pitch shot or scoring shot around the green is, it's, I call it the two E's, the little capital letter E. What's the easiest thing I can do that requires the least amount of effort? Easy and effort. So the shot you described, a 70, a shot from 70 feet away from just off the green isn't your 60 degree wedge with a three quarter swing where you're flying it three quarters of the way. The easiest thing from six, seven feet off the green might be a nine iron where you bump it on the green and it, you actually hit the ball in the air about 10 feet and it rolls 60 feet. That is the least amount of margin for error that you can play easy and requires very little effort. So the more effort and the bigger the swing, the more the margin for error comes in and the more you bring in the opportunity to miss hit it, love it and blade it and just make a mess from right by the green. That's your, that's your, your, your short game opponent right there. When you're picking it, just ask yourself, what's the easiest thing I can do with the least amount of effort? Or flip it around and go, if I'm standing here and I'm watching Chris hit this shot, and Chris walks up with a lob wedge, he's taking a, a half backswing, he's going to fly a lob wedge 65 feet from 5 feet off the green and hope it stops itself right by the flag and doesn't go anywhere, I, am I going to say to him as my, my, maybe my best ball partner, hey buddy, you know, this is pretty risky. Why don't you, you know, Kind of knuckle a, a, a eight eight iron over there, run it over there, and you know then then if you get it close, you know I've got a chance to make one too. You know, think about what you tell your buddies and see if it's contrary to what you're trying to do. Rob, another great tip that uh, I saw you share on the Golf Kingdom is um, if if we've got a a, a bush, maybe a, a hedge, a small tree, some sort of impediment, you know, shortly in front of our where our golf ball is. You know, sometimes we're guessing which club I need to hit in order to hit it high enough to get it over whatever it is. 
and then on to you know uh, on towards the green. But you showed a a really easy speaking of easy a really easy tip <laughs> for how we can determine the right angle and the right club. You mind sharing that one? I you know it, it is real easy. It, it's kind of a visual, but I think I can I think I can make it work on 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 our on the show here. Is if you lay a golf club on the ground, so the, the face of the club is up at you, not face down, and you step on the face to where the face flattens against the ground, the shaft will rise, and you can see exactly how the ball will launch or what angle it'll launch at. So if I've got a 64-degree wedge, let's say, and I step on it flatten it on the ground, that thing is going to come really high off the ground. It will show you how the ball will launch. Whereas if I stand on a three iron, it's not going to come off the ground very much. So it's a real simple thing. And it's funny is, you know, in, in coaching, we think that that little thing there, stepping on the club, everybody's seen that. Everybody knows that's a thing to do. But it's funny how many players will ask me questions and I'll go, how do you not know that? And I write in my little notepad to keep in my pocket, do this on the golf kingdom because this player didn't know the answer. And if this one doesn't know to do that, there's another thousand or two thousand or ten thousand watching my TV show that are going to go, wow, I didn't know that. That's really great. So lay it on the ground, step on it, and see how much where it's to the shaft point up in the air. And if you do it next to the ball, you can go, okay, this club, if I hit it tall, will go over the bush or the little tree in front of me. Rob, just a couple more before I let you go. And one of the other things we talk a lot about on this show is all the negative self-talk we do to ourselves on the golf course. That seems to be the place we like to beat ourselves up the most. Anytime we hit a bad shot, we're, we're slamming a club into the ground. We're telling ourselves how terrible we are and that sort of thing. Um, talk about how we can do a better job of not beating ourselves up and looking forward to the next shot and leaving the bad one in the rear view. Well, you know, I mentioned it a second ago, and it goes with that question. Listen to how you talk to your friends after a bad hole and ask yourself this question. Why don't I talk to myself like that? You know, if you are playing Chris, you have a bad hole, what am I going to say to you? I'm going to say, hey, buddy, it's okay. One hole or one shot. Give, give You know, let's get up on the next hole and make birdie here. Okay, or hey, Chris, that's just one shot. Knock this one close. Get this up and down. Okay? We never talk to ourselves like that. We're our own worst cheerleader when we should be our own best cheerleader. And that's just a simple way of thinking about it. Just stop, you know, stop being a garbage man on yourself. I mean, the game's meant to be fun. And one of the, the hard things about it is we play in cart. If you were to go walk again and play, you'd find your decompressed time between shots is so much greater than when you're in a cart. I mean, the ball has barely stopped rolling and you're already up on it again ready to hit the next one. You've had no decompressed time between shots to where you're walking and talking to your friends or you notice something or you know, say, oh, wow, that's a, that's a great house over there. I never saw that house before. Or, you know, a, a view you hadn't seen on the course you're playing because, you know, golf real estate is some of the most beautiful property on the planet. So that's, you know, that's a couple of the pickles we get in is is the decompressed time between shots and carts is very, is very limited. And then number two is we don't ever grant ourselves the grace and the courtesy we give or other playing partners. I mean, you'll play with a stranger who will have a bad hole and cheerlead har- harder for him than you will be for yourself. And I think if everybody just kind of took that tack, you'd have more fun on the course. You'd find you'd rebound and play better. Rob, your, uh, your golf school is located on Kelly Plantation uh, Golf Club there in Destin, Florida. Um, talk to our listeners about uh, your golf academy there and the facilities that you have available. Well, we've got a great practice facility, Kelly, Kelly Plantation. We're right on Choctahatchee Bay, so it's a beautiful course, always in great shape, fast green, which everybody loves. 
the practice facility. We can do anything for your game on the practice facility. So we're a, we're a 365 academy. Um, we have players, you know, that come from all over the country to see us there. You can always learn about the academy at strandallgolf.com. Everything's there you need to know about booking a lesson with me. Um, you could, you can get my, my number to call and, and text me to get with me to find out exactly how we can set our plan to match your game. Social media, I'm on all platforms, whether it's under my name, Rob Strano, or under Strano Golf. You can find me at Instagram, Twitter, and on Facebook, a lot of things on Facebook. And of course, the main thing your listeners need to know that they'll have the most fun with is my TV show, The Golf Kingdom. Because of all the stuff I've done on Golf Channel, I've been asked to host my own golf show. And it's unlike any golf show you'll ever see because it's not a straight golf instruction show where it's boring things one after another. It is the only golf variety show in the world where we have all kinds of guests, fun stuff. It's entertainment. We, we teach with skits and, you know, movie, movie lines, song lyrics. I'll sing. I'll dance. Anything I can to help your game. It's called the golf kingdom. You can find it on Roku and Amazon Fire TV. Go there, download the golf kingdom. TV show channel and you can watch all the past episodes there and have some fun with me and um, it, it's just a lot of fun to be able to do, do that stuff and entertain everybody while giving them some stuff to help their game Chris Rob you're fantastic my friend uh, I can't thank you enough for uh, being patient and taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show always learn something always have a good time and uh, just like you mentioned a moment ago for the golf kingdom it's always a lot of fun because uh, you're a lot of fun and uh, we learn something every single time you're a part of the show. Thank you for being here. Well, it's always great to be with you. It's the best. You've got the best golf show out there and it's an honor to be your guest and just get together and you and I, whether, whether we're here or up in Atlanta or, or on, the, on the phone together, we have a great time. And thanks for having me again, Chris. Absolutely, Rob. Take care, my friend. Hopefully we get the opportunity to catch up at the Masters. If not, certainly uh, at Kelly Plantation at some point this spring or summer. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. See you, my friend. Take care. That's the great Rob Strano, S-T-R-A-N-O. And Strano Golf is where you can find him online. And then, again, the Golf Kingdom, it's, you know, Rob talks about being a variety show. When you check it out, and, again, go go out there and download and, and stream it, and you'll, you'll see exactly what we mean. But Rob is going to find a way to, you know, to correlate to what's going on, you know, out, whether it's in the news, whether it's historical or whatnot, to, uh, to be able to give you something that's meaningful for what's present now and then, uh, tie it into a tip or, or a, a lesson. It's fantastic stuff and it's a lot of fun. It's, uh, it is very much unlike any golf show that you're going to find out there. To Rob's point, it isn't just another, you know, golf in the simulator, golf on the golf course, you know, what you can find on YouTube. He's going to have some fun and he's going to teach you something along the way. And just, you know, some of it is simple stuff, just like he just share, shared with the, with the golf club, right? And then the trajectory piece and other parts, it's going to be, you know, fixing your putter and making sure that, you know, you, you do a much better job of aiming the putter and you sink more putts. And it's going to be, you know, a chipping lesson. It's going to be an interview with guys like Joe Theismann, who we had on last year. It's always something new and interesting and, and presented in an interesting way. That, uh, that you're going to get a real kick out of. Again, it's called the Golf Kingdom and it's on Roku and it's on Amazon Fire. I can't, I can't encourage you to go out and check it out any more than, 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 uh, than I say. Fantastic show. A lot of fun and Rob's great. We'll catch up with him hopefully again real soon. All right, folks. It is time for me to put a bow on this very first edition of our seventh season of the show. And I can't thank you enough 
for uh, for being a part of it with me. My thanks to Jonathan Yarwood, David Lee, and Rob Strano for joining me tonight. Check out our website, nextonthetea.net, to keep up with what our guest schedule looks like. And you can also stream or download any of our archive episodes. So we link back to our page over with our good friends, podcast.co. Those guys are absolutely outstanding. Been very helpful developing the show with me and, uh, and introducing it into new markets around the world. So I thank them very, very much. You can also uh, find us on uh, all kinds of different uh, podcasting sites. We're on Podbean. We're on Launchpad DM, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audioboom, Player.fm. You know, so if you've got a favorite podcasting site, you know, you can find us pretty much anywhere. But uh, I can't thank you folks enough for listening and coming back and being part of the show. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.